Good afternoon. Uh, this, this hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on East Asia, the Pacific, and International Cybersecurity Policy will come to order. I want to start by recognizing and thanking my colleague, uh, Senator Mitt Romney, the ranking member, for his partnership on this subcommittee. We have much work to do. Senator Schatz, welcome. Great to have you on the subcommittee. And I'm very pleased to welcome our two witnesses, Assistant Secretary for East Asian and Pacific Affairs, Daniel J. Crittenbrink, and USAID Assistant Administrator for Asia, Michael Schiffer. Welcome to both of you. Thank you both for your service to our country. Uh, and before I turn it over to you, I have a few opening remarks, and then Senator Romney will make a few remarks, and then we will take your testimony. The national security strategy laid out by President Biden and this administration clearly establishes the goals and mission of our national security and foreign policy. The United States seeks to promote peace, prosperity, and universal human rights through an international rules-based order grounded in freedom and respect for sovereignty. Nowhere is the successful application of that strategy more important than in the Indo-Pacific region. East Asia and the Pacific, which is the jurisdiction of this subcommittee, includes the world's fastest growing economies and the world's busiest trade routes. 40% of the world's trade moves through the Straits of Malacca. This region, home to over 2 billion people, will be at the center of 21st century geopolitics. That is why it is essential that we match our strategy with the resources and the means to implement it. And that is what today's hearing is all about. Given the critical importance of this region, and as a Pacific nation ourselves, the United States will continue to promote a free and open Indo-Pacific for ourselves and for the benefit of all the nations of the region and the world. This region is, of course, also home to the People's Republic of China. We do not seek conflict with China, but we will defend our security interests, support our allies and partners, and continue to actively promote a free and rules-based system that respects the sovereignty of nations. To protect those interests and those principles, we must continue to strengthen our bilateral relationships with countries throughout the area and work with essential regional organizations like ASEAN, as well as through other arrangements like the Quad, AUKUS, the Mekong-US Partnership, the Pacific Community, and the Pacific Islands Forum. A key part of our strategy for maintaining peace and growing prosperity is preserving the status quo across the Taiwan Strait. Let us be clear, it is not the United States that seeks to change that status quo, and we oppose any unilateral efforts to do so. Consistent with the Taiwan Relations Act, we will continue to provide Taiwan with the means to deter aggression and to defend itself. Taiwan is not alone in facing a more aggressive PRC. As stated in the National Security Strategy, and I quote, many of our allies and partners especially in the Indo-Pacific, stand on the front lines of the PRC's coercion and are rightly determined to seek to ensure their own autonomy, security, and prosperity. It goes on to state, and I quote, we will support their ability to make sovereign decisions in line with their interests and values, free from external pressure, and work to provide high standard and scale investment, development assistance, and markets, end quote. A major part of today's hearing will focus on how we aim to provide that promised support. The wise use of economic statecraft will be essential to its success. 
A sound economic strategy begins with the strong economy here at home. And many of the measures we enacted in the last Congress, including the bipartisan infrastructure bill, the Chips and Science Act, and the vital clean energy investments made in the Inflation Reduction Act provide a strong foundation. But in order to ensure our own long-term prosperity, help other countries raise their standards of living, and counter the PRC's efforts to export their mercantilist and authoritarian model, we must deploy the right global economic policy tools. I encourage all of my colleagues to read three recent important speeches on this matter. One delivered by Secretary Yellen at SICE on April 20th. Another delivered by National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan at Brookings on April 27th. And one by European Commission President Ursula von, von, Ursula von der Leyen before she embarked on her visit to the PRC in April of this year. Taken together, those three speeches create a very important framework for our strategy. I also commend the Biden administration for launching important economic initiatives, including the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework for Prosperity, the Partnership for Global Infrastructure and Investment, and the Just Energy Transition Partnership, or JETP. I recently returned from a CODEL organized by Senator Merkley to Vietnam and Indonesia, and these initiatives were a key part of that agenda. As we implement a strategy to promote peace and prosperity, we must also work with countries in the region to combat the climate crisis. Rising sea levels are literally an existential threat to many Pacific islands and large parts of the countries in East Asia. That means implementing a two-fold strategy, one, to support measures to reduce emissions of greenhouse gases and to stop cutting down the forests that are such important carbon sinks. It also means helping these countries build resiliency to confront the impacts of climate change. Let me close with this. Implementing our national security strategy and foreign policy in East Asia and the Pacific cannot be done on the cheap. It requires resources. At this point, I believe the greatest threat to our success lies not in any adversary overseas, but division and polarization here at home. Most immediately, any default on America's debts and obligations would be an irreparable self-inflicted wound. It would destroy our economy here at home and destroy our credibility around the world. Nothing would better serve the interests of our adversaries. Let us work together on a bipartisan basis to keep America strong at home and around the world. I'll now turn it over to Ranking Member Romney for his statement. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, good to be with you today, and also Senator Schatz and Senator Ricketts. Uh, appreciate the opportunity to uh, be able to speak with our colleagues today and learn from them about our uh, prospects um, uh, in the Indo-Pacific and to uh, address the budget request that they've provided. Um, I think there's broad agreement that the critical foreign policy challenge that we face and opportunity we have uh, arises from China's emergence as a great power, uh, a nation which is not playing by the rules. And the fact that it's not playing by the rules presents particular challenges for us and for the world. Um, it's essential, in my view, as we think about spending the, the money that Chairman Van Hollen has indicated, um, that we spend it according to a comprehensive strategy that we've developed that, uh, that focuses our resources on those things that we think will be most effective. In, in the last um, Congress, 
Chairman Menendez and I actually passed legislation which would require the administration to produce a comprehensive strategy to deal with China. During the Cold War, Presidents Ford and Eisenhower and Reagan directed similar undertakings as we confronted the Soviet Union, and I believe we should carry out the same type of strategic effort with regards to China. But I'm concerned that the administration is sort of hoping this will go away or that a speech of grand principles will suffice. Um, I, I very much support the principles that have been described by Secretary Blinken and Secretary Yellen. Both have given addresses uh, with matters in this regard. But when I talk about a grand strategy, and as Senator Menendez does, we're talking about something far more comprehensive than just principles. So, I mean, just to tick off some of the things that's in, that are in China's program, they have a talent program, as you know. They have a, a theft of intellectual property program. They have uh, the Confucius Institute program. They have uh, uh, trade agreements that they put in place that they think will promote their interests. They have uh, massive investments in Africa and Latin America and the Caribbean and other places. Uh, they have a propaganda program. They have a spy program. They have a raw materials program to, to achieve monopolies in key raw materials. Uh, they send students into American universities with a plan for them to come back and provide technology that they've learned. Uh, and one of the most troubling aspects of their strategy is their effort to live by different trade rules than the rest of the nations uh, live by, monopolizing certain industries, uh, a predatory pricing to achieve that monopoly, establishing uh, a pathways around the national trade rules. So we are very anxious to learn that the administration has begun the process of completing a development of a comprehensive strategy. Part of our legislation called for outside voices, not just members of the administration, but outside voices, members of Republican administrations in the past, uh, to make sure this is a strategy that has bipartisan support and lasts beyond one president, but also people in the uh, foreign policy world uh, that, that uh, uh, are focused on this area to get their input and to consider the widest range uh, of options. Uh, there are other issues that I'm going to get a chance to talk about today, but I want to underscore that, uh, underscore again my uh, support for the comments that have been made by the uh, 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 chairman of this committee, I, I, uh, I want to make sure that we don't do anything that weakens our positions relative to China. I, I would note uh, a, a comment which has been made by several people that basically every strategic and every funding decision we make should be considered through the lens of how it affects our strength relative to China, uh, because it is the foreign policy uh, challenge of our, of our era. And with that, Mr. Chairman, uh, I look forward to the questions that we'll hear from you and from our colleagues. Uh, thank you, Senator Romney, uh, and also welcome Senator Ricketts. Um, now we'll turn to today's uh, witnesses. Um, Daniel Crittenbrink uh, became Assistant Secretary of State for East Asia and Pacific Affairs uh, on September of 2021. In September 2021, he came to this job with a wealth of experience and knowledge uh, during his nearly three decades of distinguished public service. Mr. Crittenbrink, served as U.S. Ambassador to Vietnam from 2017 to 2021, and his deep background in Indo-Pacific Affairs includes time as Senior Director for Asian Affairs at the National Security Council and service as Deputy Chief of Mission at the U.S. Embassy in Beijing. Welcome, Assistant Secretary Crittenbrink. Let me now also uh, welcome back uh, to the committee uh, Michael Schiffer, uh, who is well known to us uh, from serving on this side uh, of the dais. Um, 
on the committee for a decade as a senior advisor and counselor uh, to the committee. It's wonderful to see him again and see him continue to make a difference on the global stage, now as USAID Assistant Administrator for Asia. Mr. Schiffer also brings an abundance of experience. Prior to his service on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, he served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for East Asia and as a program officer at the Stanley Foundation responsible for the Foundation's Asia programs. Thank you both again for your service. Uh, we look forward to your testimony. I respectfully ask that both of you try to keep your opening statements to five minutes and anything you're not able to cover will be entered into the record. With that, let me turn it over to you, Assistant Secretary Grittenbrink. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Chairman Van Hollen, Ranking Member Romney, members of this subcommittee, thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today to testify regarding the President's fiscal year 24 budget request for the East Asia and Pacific region. It's truly an honor uh, to be here. As President Biden stated in our national security strategy, U.S. leadership in the Indo-Pacific, which of course includes the EAP region, is paramount as the Indo-Pacific fuels much of the world's economic growth and will be the epicenter of 21st century geopolitics. As an Indo-Pacific nation, we must work to build the collective capacity of our allies, partners, and friends to promote a vision for the region that is free and open, connected, prosperous, secure, and resilient. The EAP Bureau holds a key responsibility to advance the administration's priorities for the Indo-Pacific, as our region is home to all but six countries of the broader Indo-Pacific region, and of course, includes the People's Republic of China. Our Indo-Pacific strategy includes our approach to the People's Republic of China, of course, but it is not defined by it. In other words, we have an Indo-Pacific strategy of which China is a part and not the other way around. That said, while strategic competition with the PRC remains a global challenge, tensions are most acute in the Indo-Pacific region, which is the primary focus of the PRC's growing influence and ambitions. The administration's approach to the PRC is to invest, align, and compete. We are investing in the foundations of our strength at home, aligning with partners and allies on our approach abroad, and competing with the PRC to defend our interests and build our vision for the future. Our objective is not to change the PRC, but rather to shape the strategic environment in which it operates, building a balance of influence that is favorable to the United States, our allies and partners, and the interests and values that we share. In support of the administration's Indo-Pacific strategy, the President's FY24 budget request for the EAP region includes a diplomatic engagement budget of $533 million and a foreign assistance budget of $1.36 billion. In addition, the President's budget requests, uh, request includes $2 billion in mandatory funding to support the Indo-Pacific strategy and $7.1 billion in mandatory funding to support the Compacts of Free Association, or the COFA. Further, the FY24 budget uh, includes $2 billion in mandatory funding to support international infrastructure globally, including presumably projects in the East Asia and Pacific region. Here I'd like to provide a brief overview of how the President's budget for EAP directly supports the five objectives of our Indo-Pacific strategy. First, we're advancing a free and open Indo-Pacific. The FY24 budget supports our continued investment in democratic institutions, a free press, and a vibrant civil society that will improve fiscal transparency to expose corruption. These efforts complement our expanded diplomatic presence across the Indo-Pacific, including a new embassy in the Solomon Islands and proposed new embassies in Kiribati, Tonga, and Vanuatu. These efforts also support our commitment to respect sovereignty and territorial integrity 
unimpeded lawful commerce, the peaceful resolution of disputes, and the freedom of navigation and overflight, including in the South China Sea and the East China Sea. Second, we're building connections in the Indo-Pacific and beyond. The President's request supports our bilateral relationships as well as our engagement with regional groupings and institutions, including ASEAN, the Quad, the Pacific Islands Forum, the Pacific Community, and the Mekong-US partnership to build capacity and address regional challenges. Third, we are driving Indo-Pacific prosperity. With the continued negotiations for the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework for Prosperity, or IPEF, and the launch of the Partnership for Global Infrastructure and Investment, the President's budget will ensure economic engagement that will promote a connected, resilient, and fair Indo-Pacific economy. The President's budget will also enable us to follow through on the commitments made during the 2023 U.S. APEC host year. Fourth, we are bolstering Indo-Pacific security. Recognizing that security is a necessary condition for prosperity, the President's budget will build the capacity of our Indo-Pacific partners to respond to and resolve both domestic and transnational security threats. We also remain committed to maintaining peace and security across the Taiwan Strait. Our One China policy, which has remained consistent, has helped to maintain cross-strait peace and stability for the past 40 years. In line with the Taiwan Relations Act, the United States will continue to assist Taiwan in maintaining a sufficient self-defense capability. Fifth, we are building regional resilience. U.S. security depends on our collaboration with our allies and partners to address shared challenges. The President's budget supports health security, climate adaptation and mitigation efforts, and energy security to build regional resilience to transnational threats. In summary, the U.S. role in the region must be more effective and enduring than ever before. As is often said at these hearings, uh, resources determine priorities, and as such, our partners and allies in the Indo-Pacific are keenly looking at our ability to deliver resources as a sign of our commitment and durability in the region. The President's FY24 budget request will allow us to further strengthen our commitment in this vitally important region. Thank you again for inviting me to testify. Look forward to uh, answering your questions. Thank you. Thank you for your testimony. Uh, Assistant Director Schiffer. Chairman Van Hollen, uh, Ranking Member Romney, distinguished members of the committee, uh, thank you for inviting me to testify on USAID's role in advancing U.S. foreign policy priorities in East Asia and the Pacific. Uh, it's, it's good to be back in this room, although I, I have to say, um, sitting behind you uh, in the dais is a much more comfortable view than the view from this table. Uh, as uh, my colleague, Assistant Secretary Crittenbrink, uh, laid out, the importance of the East Asia and Pacific region for the United States cannot be understated. The region is home to the majority of humanity, the world's fastest growing economies, the busiest maritime trade routes. These countries are essential partners in creating a free and open Indo-Pacific that improves lives in Asia, underwrites regional stability and security, and helps generate prosperity here at home. USAID is clear-eyed about the strategic context of the region, as well as the People's Republic of China. Uh, and China's intent to rewrite existing national, regional rules and global rules and norms for its own narrow advantages. But our development approach starts not with the question of what we are against, but rather what we are for. USAID embodies what the United States can offer the region as a partner and friend in development to communities and families who are seeking to transform their lives, and more broadly, as a leader in U.S. efforts to advance a free and open, connected, prosperous, secure, and resilient Indo-Pacific. That is what the region wants, and that is what we strive to provide. The President's Indo-Pacific strategy serves as the primary thrust of our FY 2024 budget request, which aims to improve resilience to health and climate threats, 
foster sustainable, inclusive, and transparent economic growth, and strengthen democratic institutions to support good governance and human rights. This corresponds most directly with the most pressing challenges to sustainable development in the region and the requests we receive from our partners. Support to address rising authoritarianism, the ease and proliferation of information manipulation, and the climate crisis, all of which seriously threaten food security, citizen responsive governance, and national sovereignty in the region. To tackle these challenges, the President's FY24 budget request for USAID includes $964.4 million for East Asia and the Pacific, which is a $194 million increase, or 25% over the FY23 request. We believe that this increase is merited by the scope and scale and urgency of the challenges that we face in the region. In line with the Administration's priorities, USAID's request prioritizes key sectors that advance U.S. national security and prosperity alongside that of our partners and our allies in, the, in Asia and the Pacific. First, to boost inclusive, boost inclusive economic growth, USAID will promote trade and investment, private sector productivity, and digital connectivity. Second, our demand-driven climate change activities will help reduce emissions, protect critical infrastructure and ecosystems, implement regulatory reforms, mitigate resource conflict, and help partners transition to renewable energy. Third, we will work to reverse democratic backsliding and strengthen democratic institutions and norms. Fourth, to bolster women's economic empowerment, gender equity, and human rights, USAID will work to increase women's political, civic, and economic engagement, address gender inequality, and combat gender-based violence. Finally, to strengthen health systems to detect and respond to emerging threats, USAID will continue to bolster the resilience of partner countries and economies to prevent, detect, and respond to pandemic threats and increase their ability to withstand future shocks. With your continued support, this budget request will allow USAID to deliver on our commitment to East Asia and the Pacific. As Administrator Power has noted, it is in America's best interest to help feed the world, to help protect fellow democracies, to advocate for the dignity of all people, not only to reflect an America that is generous, compassionate, and moral, but also to protect the safety and prosperity of the American people. With your continued support, and on behalf of the American people, USAID will continue our central role in realizing this vision while increasing partner countries' resilience, capacity, and advancing sustainable prosperity and security for communities across the Indo-Pacific. I look forward to your counsel and to your questions. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Schiffer. Uh, now we're going to begin with um, uh, questioning, um, and we'll have multiple rounds of questioning uh, for members uh, who are interested. Uh, there's a lot of ground to cover um, in a short period of time. Uh, I'm going to start with some security-related uh, questions, and that means uh, Assistant Secretary Crittenbrink, these questions will be directed to you. Uh, we all know that uh, President Xi and the PRC have been following very closely uh, what's happening in Ukraine, both the response to the Ukrainian people uh, as well as the support the United States and our allies and partners have provided to Ukraine, both on the military front uh, as well as united action on the economic front, uh, which, while not perfect, I think China has taken notice of the unity of that effort as they consider their options and future options with respect to uh, Taiwan. So my question is this. When it comes to our ability to organize a united economic 
response uh, in the event that China were to provide lethal assistance to Russia in its war against Ukraine. Where, do you, where does that stand now? And part two of that question is, do you agree that in the interests of deterring any Russian aggression against, excuse me, any, any PRC aggression against Taiwan, it makes sense to signal in advance not just the fact that we're continuing to provide Taiwan with the, the means to defend itself, but does it make sense to signal in advance a united partnership with our EU colleagues as well as our democratic partners uh, in East Asia uh, to impose very tough economic consequences uh, in the event of any aggression by the PRC against Taiwan, which in and of itself obviously would create a huge amount of economic um, uh, stress, tension. Yes, sir, Mr. Chairman, thank you very much for uh, your questions, uh, which are incredibly important. I, I, I would say that we have continued to express our deep concern um, regarding the support uh, that China has continued uh, to provide Russia in its eagle, uh, illegal and unprovoked war uh, in uh, Ukraine. Uh, but we've also uh, specifically made clear that there would be significant consequences uh, if China were to provide uh, lethal assistance uh, to Russia. And I think that's something that not only the United States has made clear, but that many of our partners uh, around the world in Europe and Asia uh, have made clear as well. And we do think that's vitally important. That again, as you noted at the outset, in the national security strategy of the United States, we make clear that we support globally a rules-based order that has helped to undergird the peace and prosperity for these past uh, many decades. And that uh, rules-based international order is uh, currently under assault. Uh, and the key example of that, again, is Russia's uh, invasion. So we have continued to make that clear uh, to counterparts in Beijing, as have our partners, and we'll, we'll continue uh, to do so. Um, I also agree with you, Mr. Chairman, that we, uh, we know that countries around the world are watching closely and carefully uh, what is happening in Ukraine. Um, and uh, I would hope that everyone around the world, uh, including in Beijing, would note uh, the incredible unity in the international community opposing uh, Russia's invasion and the collective imposition of costs uh, uh, on, on Russia. Uh, in the context uh, of Taiwan, we have continued to signal, uh, Mr. Chairman, that there is no change to our long-standing One China policy, of which you are familiar. That framework has helped to maintain peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait uh, for more than four decades now. The United States of America is committed to maintaining that peace and stability. We support uh, the status quo, and we oppose changes to that status quo uh, by uh, either side. And I think it's important and has been gratifying that many partners around the world have also recognized that peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait is a key matter of international concern. It is not just an internal Chinese matter. You, you referenced the 50% of global shipping that passes through the Taiwan Strait uh, on any given day. Uh, we talk about the large number of high-end chips that are manufactured in Taiwan, including 90% of high-end chips. Any kind of a crisis or conflict in the Taiwan Strait would be devastating. Uh, to the global economy. So I think it is very much in our interest and our collective interest with allies and partners and friends to continue to signal 
that uh, just how important it is to maintain peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait, and again, to send a message to China that we would oppose uh, any efforts um, to use um, other than peaceful means uh, to try to change the situation there. Uh, thank you. I, I may circle back to some of those, um, to follow up on some yes, of sir. those points, but let me turn it over to Senator Romney. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, as I mentioned in my opening remarks, uh, Chairman Menendez and I worked together on legislation calling for a uh, comprehensive strategy to be developed with regards to China and deep with deep granular and tactical uh, aspects, as well as outside uh, involvement. Uh, our legislation became law in the NDAA, NDAA two years ago. Uh, Senator Risch and I wrote a letter to the president last November uh, requesting an update on that progress. Uh, we have not received a response to that. By law, the administration must submit the China Comprehensive Strategy 270 days after they submit the National Security Strategy. Given the fact that that was submitted October 12th, it means that the final strategy on China is due on July 8th. Um, so more than 200 days have now passed since the National Strategy uh, national security strategy was uh, uh, put in place. What progress has been made by the administration in developing that kind of comprehensive, tactically included uh, grand strategy with regards to China? Uh, Mr. Kirkenbrink. Mr. Ranking Member, thank you very much for uh, your question. And yes, sir, uh, we're very much aware uh, of the letter from you uh, and um, Ranking Member Risch, uh, as you outlined at the top uh, Senator, uh, obviously the United States has made very clear what our approach to China is. It was outlined in, uh, in the speech that Secretary Blinken uh, gave last year. But I can assure you, uh, Mr. Ranking Member, that the administration will fulfill uh, the requirement outlined in the NDAA. We will share uh, our comprehensive China strategy with China uh, in uh, the coming weeks. Um, this administration obviously has regularly briefed Congress uh, on matters related to China. We'll continue uh, to do so. We look forward. Uh, to doing so, and we appreciate your support uh, on that. And we will uh, uh, deliver that strategy. We expect to deliver that strategy well ahead of the deadline that you have referenced. Thank you. I, I would note that I would hope numerous aspects of that would be uh, classified. Yes, sir. And would only be available to a... Um, a I believe almost all of it would yeah, be, sir. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Are there outside people being involved in that effort? Um, Senator, I, I would say that um, obviously we're aware of the, uh, the language in the NDAA regarding giving the president an option to establish this advisory board. I think it's fair to say that we do regularly consult with outside uh, experts and uh, uh, former practitioners uh, on our approach uh, to China. Um, I don't know that I could say that they're formally involved uh, in the uh, the formation and the execution of our classified uh, China strategy. Yeah, I, I, but obviously we have benefited a great deal from outside uh, expertise as we have crafted our strategy. I, I would only underscore that I think the credibility and the permanence of, uh, of that strategy would be enhanced by having the, the perspective of, of people from both parties and people outside the, the governmental uh, sphere. Um, I, I would, uh, is there a point person or, or that's responsible for this or is there some, are, are you the one that's leading this effort or who, who in the State Department is leading that, uh, that uh, effort, do you know? Uh, on the strategy? Yes, consulting. Yes. Um, as with many things, uh, Mr. Ranking Member, um, this is a collaborative effort across the interagency, but I think it's safe to say and I, I would hope 
would be apparent that um, uh, the White House has the lead on crafting the government-wide uh, U.S.-China strategy, but certainly the State Department and my bureau. That'd be J has played a Jake Sullivan or? or uh... Yes, sir, the National Security Advisor and, and his team. All right. I, I, I just can't resist elaborating on a, a point that was raised by the chairman at this committee, which is um, uh, Taiwan. Uh, and, and, and I was of the view that it was unlikely that China would um, immediately invade Taiwan. Uh, there were some who thought that uh, when Russia went into Ukraine, that China would immediately follow suit. I didn't think that was a particularly wise thing uh, to suggest uh, for numerous, re numerous reasons. But, but one being that China would, uh, would learn that many times there are unintended consequences for that, that type of action. And nations that have invaded a sovereign neighbor have often found that some unintended consequences have come back to hurt them very badly, as clearly Russia has found with regards to Ukraine. Um, China invading Taiwan would potentially have those consequences, one of which relates not just to chips, but to the proprietary products that go into manufacturing various high-tech products. Uh, it is my understanding that, that Taiwan manufactures literally hundreds of items beyond uh, semiconductors that could be produced nowhere else, and that if those were to be disrupted, that China's economy would be severely impacted. I, I, I would only encourage us uh, to evaluate how many of those products there are, how much impact would be uh, felt in this economy were, they to be, were there to be interruption of some kind. But it is my hope and belief that the extraordinary proprietary capabilities that, that Taiwan has uh, will serve as, as perhaps one of the most effective deterrents of, uh, to keep China from uh, carrying out uh, kinetic activity. And therefore, I, it, at least in my own view, I'm sorry I'm going on here, but in, in my own view, um, uh, that China is gonna look for not just a military, uh, if you will, takeover of Taiwan, but looking for, for a gradual economic and geopolitical takeover, and that we should be focused not just on our military strengthening, but also on those geopolitical efforts that are going to be necessary to, to keep China, uh, Taiwan's backbone strong. If you have any comment on that, either one of you, I'm happy to hear it if the chairman will oblige. I will. Um, please keep it. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Yes, sir. Uh, Mr. Ranking Member, I, I would just say I think you've outlined clearly the case for why uh, it is vitally important to maintain peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait and why it is in no one's interest, including the PRCs, uh, to take precipitous uh, uh, action uh, that would lead to, to conflict. Um, there would be serious consequences for the entire world if such an event were uh, to happen. And I would say, Mr. Ranking Member, I would just add that we are focused on not just the maintenance of peace and stability, but doing so through deterrence. And we believe that that involves uh, a wide range uh, of efforts, not just the provision uh, of, uh, of uh, arms of a defensive nature to Taiwan, but also working uh, to build out Taiwan's international space uh, and to ensure uh, that Taiwan uh, play, continues to play a key role uh, globally as well. But we're committed to using uh, all means in, at our disposal to uh, contribute to that peace and stability across the, the Taiwan Strait. And I think you've outlined the case very well, Mr. Ranking Member. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Senator Schatz. Thank you, uh, Chairman. Thank you both uh, for being here. Uh, Assistant Secretary, I'm closely monitoring the negotiations with the Freely Associated States. I met with Ambassador Yoon. I think we're on a very positive track. 
Um, but we're now at the point where we obviously have to land this particular airplane, but then we have to get it through the legislative process. And uh, uh, two questions. First, we just want your commitment to work with us to find a moving vehicle that we can put this um, uh, uh, into. I think it's unlikely to get floor time on its own. And then, uh, and that's a simple yes or no. And the second question for you is if you could just briefly talk about how important it is to renew this compact of free association. Senator Schatz, thank you very much for uh, your question. Uh, obviously, we're committed to working closely um, with members of this body to ensure uh, that we conclude uh, successfully the negotiations over the compacts of free association uh, and that we uh, work to ensure uh, that those compacts are reflected uh, in U.S. law. Uh, Senator, I would say that concluding the compacts uh, of free association are in America's vital national interests. They're absolutely central to our entire approach to the region, certainly vitally important to our entire position uh, in the Pacific, not just the Northern Pacific, but uh, the entire Pacific. We have, as you well know, Senator Schatz, we have longstanding uh, historic uh, relations with the three uh, freely associated states. Uh, reflecting our uh, special history together. Uh, the compacts, of course, uh, the, the nature of those agreements are very important, not just to the three freely associated states, but also uh, to U.S. national security interests as well. Uh, and those compacts uh, ensure uh, not only uh, America's strategic position across the Pacific, but also the continued peace and stability and prosperity across much of the Pacific. We think it's vitally important. We're very grateful for your support, Senator. Thank you. Um, as you know, you know better than I do, this is a big year for expanding the U.S. presence in the Pacific. Um, just to check in, are you on track uh, for opening all four planned new missions this year? Well, what I would say, uh, Senator, is this. As you know, we have uh, already opened uh, our new embassy in the Solomon Islands. We're in, uh, on track uh, this month uh, to open our new embassy uh, in Tonga. Uh, and we continue uh, to engage uh, with our friends in Vanuatu and Kiribati as well on our proposed new embassies there. Um, the uh, president's budget uh, request reflects uh, these efforts and we're committed uh, to carrying out the diplomacy to uh, uh, get those done. Now, the only reason why I'm not giving you a definitive answer, uh, Senator, is, is obviously uh, for each of these embassies, it requires uh, negotiation and consent, of course. With yeah, absolutely. So, so but, but we are working diligently yeah. and we're on track, but I, I can't guarantee the time frames, for example, for Vanuatu and Kiribati, which are not worked out. I got it. So, but if you could get back to the committee with some additional fidelity, understanding that this has got to be an iterative process and, yes. you know, nothing about me without me, we can't just do this without of, the cooperation of the, of, of, of the other government. So, Completely. so I understand that. Um, I don't think there's anything that I hear more about in, uh, from my uh, Filipino-American uh, constituents than um, the visa operations in the Philippines. And I know COVID sort of smashed consular operations everywhere, and you've got tech issues and staffing issues, but I am just would like to be reassured that coming out of COVID, and understanding the importance, of, I mean, uh, tomorrow uh, President Marcos uh, visits with, with uh, President Biden, and we are, I think, on a relatively positive track. I want to be careful about how we characterize this because we've had some difficulty in terms of aligning our values between the United States and the Philippines, 
particularly on human rights, but I, I, I am cautiously optimistic about that. But the people-to-people -people relationships depend on the efficiency of those offices, and I'm wondering if you can give me some good news. Um, Senator, well, first of all, thank you very much for raising this issue. We had the honor uh, of hosting uh, President Marcos in the White House yesterday uh, and then joining a dinner with him last night. And I think uh, as, you, uh, as you outlined and as was uh, announced in the joint statement that we uh, just released uh, in the context of his visit, um, uh, I think uh, President Marcos's visit here uh, has strengthened um, um, to a great deal uh, our longstanding alliance uh, and friendship. And this is a broad-ranging, very deep uh, partnership that you've outlined. Certainly, people-to-people -people ties are key to that, including the 4 million uh, Filipino-Americans here in the United States. Um, regarding consular issues, and I assume, Senator, you're, you're referring to uh, visa delays. Uh, and the Yes. Like. I'm happy to take that back and talk with my uh, colleague, Assistant Secretary Rena Bitter. I know from my previous conversations with her, uh, that she and her colleagues in the in Consular Affairs Bureau are very focused on reducing those wait times. I don't know exactly where we stand right now in the Philippines, but I will take that back and find out. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Schatz. And I, I do want to welcome Senator Duckworth uh, to the committee. And now turn it over to Senator Ricketts for questioning. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Chairman, when you were going through the credentials of Secretary Crittenbrink, you forgot to mention that he is from Nebraska. <laughs> So now he's a he's a loper. So I didn't say Cornhuskers. Thank you, Senator. <laughs> and I had the privilege of uh, doing a trade mission to Vietnam when he was ambassador. So speaking of Nebraska, we certainly had the firsthand experience with the malign ambition and threats the Chinese Communist Party faces to Nebraskans when their spy balloon floated across our airspace as well as a number of other airspace uh, states airspace. And of course, Nebraska is home to the strategic command, which manages our nuclear forces. So very concerning with regard to that. But it's nothing, it pales in comparison to what the Chinese Communist Party does to Taiwan, whether it's cyber attacks, fighter jets, warplanes, and that sort of thing. And, and of course, uh, President Xi in his most recent party congress, again, reiterated his desire to unify with Taiwan if, uh, by force, if necessary. And that, obviously, this has been the topic of conversation here already. And uh, obviously, it's important for us to be able to provide to the uh, government of Taiwan the arms they need to protect themselves. I think we've got uh, former um, Indo-PACOM Commander Admiral Davidson, uh, Chief of Naval Operations Admiral Gilday, Air Mobility Commander General Mike Minahan, all have said that uh, China could uh, be attempting to take over Taiwan sometime in the next few years. And President Biden has been strong in talking about defending Taiwan, sometimes so much the staff has had to walk back some of his comments. My question gets to the budget proposal where, help me with this, I'm looking through this and I don't see, as I'm walking through this budget, very many mentions of Taiwan. In fact, uh, just one in the entire budget where Taiwan is even mentioned as a priority. Um, you get the new global FMF line, which provides only $16 million baseline for Indo-Pacific. And that's not just for Taiwan, that's the entire Indo-Pacific. So talk to me about what this budget means for helping to make sure Taiwan can defend itself should the Chinese Communist Party want to take over Taiwan by force. $16 million doesn't sound like very much money. And again, I think the USAID, you were talking about, you were proposing a, like a 25% increase in your budget it was like 190 $3 million, something like that. So there, there seems to be a disconnect there. 
Senator, thank you very much for uh, your questions. And again, let me, let me just underscore uh, what a priority is and how important it is to the United States of America that we continue to maintain peace and stability uh, across the Taiwan Strait and that we deter uh, any possibility of precipitous uh, PRC action aimed at Taiwan. I think as you've outlined, we, we noted, of course, uh, China's uh, stated policies in which they uh, claim uh, that the uh, so-called great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation is incomplete without, quote-unquote, reunifying with Taiwan. So this is deeply concerning. Uh, we are deeply concerned by the range of Chinese coercive actions aimed uh, at Taiwan that threaten to undermine uh, the status quo and the peace and stability that uh, is so important to all of us. I, I can underscore and, and make, I want to make absolutely clear, um, uh, Senator, that not everything that we're doing uh, on Taiwan is going to be reflected in, uh, in the budget lines uh, before you. Um, just under this administration, just last year actually, we notified 13 different arms sales to Taiwan. We've notified uh, $15 billion, in, or rather $5 billion, excuse me, $5 billion in foreign military sales to Taiwan uh, under the Biden administration. Uh, and that accounts for, uh, uh, in the larger picture, 37 billion since 2010 and 21 billion since 2019. So we are committed uh, to making available to Taiwan the necessary uh, defensive arms so that it can maintain uh, a sufficient defense uh, capacity. Um, I will point out, uh, Senator, we are open to and we are grateful for uh, the various um, uh, options that have been made available to the administration to assist Taiwan to maintain uh, self-defense capacity. We are open to exploring uh, all of those different uh, avenues. I, I think that foreign military sales have been the primary channel that has been used to date, but we are open to exploring uh, all of those means. And again, we are absolutely committed to meeting uh, our obligations under the Taiwan Relations Act. In your opinion, do we need, given the potential threat here from the Chinese Communist Party to take Taiwan by force, is it your opinion that we need to accelerate arms sales to Taiwan, and are there specific things that you would recommend that the government of Taiwan focus on with regard to the types of military sales? Well, Senator, uh, we're doing everything possible to accelerate uh, all of the arms that have arms sales that have already been uh, notified. And um, some of that is related to uh, improvements that the U.S. government uh, can make, needs to make. Some of that is related to uh, supply chain and industrial-based challenges, and I know that we work with uh, members of the Senate to uh, address those uh, as well. But again, we will meet our obligations under the Taiwan Relations Act to assist Taiwan to maintain a sufficient self-defense. At the same time, um, arms sales alone don't represent everything that we're doing, of course. Uh, we're consulting with uh, our Taiwan partners uh, on a daily basis uh, on the things that they can do to better defend themselves. Uh, and that relates to the various defense reforms that President Tsai and others have carried out uh, in Taiwan. Uh, that uh, includes uh, mobilizing uh, an all-quote-unquote uh, all-society uh, defense. Uh, it means um, investing in asymmetric uh, defense capabilities uh, that we believe uh, better uh, deter uh, the possibility of a, of a uh, precipitous action against uh, Taiwan. And it also involves things like extending the uh, mandatory service or conscription period uh, for, uh, uh, for Taiwan youth to, to one year. So we're, uh, and it also has involved a quite a substantial increase in Taiwan's own defense budget. So we think together with meeting our obligations, friends in Taiwan have done a great deal uh, to increase their own defensive capacity. And then I would add, uh, Senator, as I mentioned to the ranking member, 
uh, we're also working uh, with partners around the world who, like us, share an interest in maintaining peace and stability uh, so that we can um, uh, build out deterrence uh, in that way as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Duckworth. And thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, gentlemen, welcome. One of the consistent messages I, I hear from our partners in the region is the exceptional value they place on United States provided training, whether through the Fulbright program, the um, Yaisili program, the Waisili program, the Young Southeast Asian Leaders Initiative, um, or the IMET program uh, through DOD. I know that English language training also remains in high demand to help improve interoperability and facilitate future collaboration. These programs build relationships that leave positive impacts over decades as recipients move into senior leadership positions in their own countries. Assistant Secretary Crittenbrink, uh, how does this, welcome, good to see you again, by the way. How does this budget expand our ability to offer these key programs and others like them to our Indo-Pacific allies and partners, and what more can we be doing? Senator Duckworth, ma'am, nice to see you again. Yes. Thank you very much for your question. I couldn't agree more that I think people-to-people um, -people ties forms a bedrock for almost every bilateral relationship that we have uh, in the region. Uh, and uh, you outlined uh, many of the key exchange programs. There are many more, of course, Fulbright, Wysely, uh, IMET, and others. Um, in uh, the President's budget uh, request, uh, it includes uh, a 13% uh, increase in our diplomatic engagement budget, uh, and that covers both uh, our staffing across the region and also uh, our public diplomacy program. So um, if you would like further details on exactly what would be involved, I'd be happy to, to come back to you with that. But we, we do agree with you that um, it's building people-to-people -people ties, and it's also being active in the information space to counter lots of the disinformation coming from various parts of the region that we think are, are vitally important for our long-term interests. But we're very much committed to people-to-people uh, -people ties. Thank you, and do come back with me with more I will, detail. Um, I, I do want to continue on a topic I discussed with Administrator Power last week um, regarding how this budget request helps prioritize consistent, clean, safe drinking water access for um, the priority countries. And I understand that priority list includes countries like Indonesia and Philippines. Assistant Administrator Schiffer, can you share more details with us regarding the investments and activities planned in both of these countries, Philippines and Indonesia, under the U.S. Global Water Strategy? And specifically, I'd like to hear a bit about how USAID has found success prioritizing local partners and local solutions that result in lasting improvements with uh, you know, domestic partners. Thank you for that question, Senator. Um, working with local communities uh, through the administrator's uh, focus on, on localization so that we're pushing uh, programs out uh, to those that know best the problems that they face so that we can work with them to, uh, uh, to help build their capacity to face them is at the heart of, of much of the work that we do. Uh, and that's for water and sanitation as well as uh, across a, a whole range of our, of our works. Uh, you know, on the, on the programs in uh, Indonesia and the Philippines specifically, uh, I'll be happy to get back to you because we are still very much uh, in keeping with the spirit of uh, the localization effort and consulting and working with local partners so that we're taking on board uh, their priorities as we develop those programs. We're still in the process uh, of, of determining the, uh, the, the pathway forward. Um, but I can tell you that we have had uh, tremendous success uh, uh, in Vietnam, as Assistant Secretary Curtin Brink knows from, from his time there, 
as well as in the, the, the Pacific Islands, um, in working with local communities on uh, clean water and uh, sanitation issues. Um, and that is an area that we get a tremendous return uh, on our foreign, uh, you know, foreign assistance and development uh, dollars uh, for building better relationships uh, in, in those countries that then have all sorts of additional overflow equities for our, for our diplomatic posture. If you could get back to me at a later point with your um, plans on, on clean water initiatives in Indonesia and Philippines in particular, I'd appreciate it. We'd be happy to. Thank you. Um, uh, Secretary Crittenbank, I, I want to talk to you about um, uh, uh, accessibility, uh, ADA compliance. Um, uh, the lack of accessibility at so many of our facilities is a serious obstacle to full participation in the State Department of, with persons with disabilities, both for our own staff, but also when we host uh, uh, host nation uh, uh, members uh, at events at the embassies. Um, uh, and it's also really tough for individuals with family members who may be disabled. Um, uh, I, when I went to Japan uh, a couple years ago, I found the mission to not be accessible. I was offered to stay in a hotel room that I was told was going to be accessible. Um, I got there, it was not accessible. My entire Codell had to move it very late in the evening to a different hotel. Um, uh, this last time that I went to Japan, um, I was offered um, a hotel room, luckily before we went. Uh, um, that was the same one that was found to be not accessible the last time I was there. Um, and we flagged it and we were put in one that was accessible. Um, you know, I saw that the State Department's FY24 budget request, and by the way, I think the, um, the ambassador's residence is still not fully accessible in Japan. Yeah. Um, uh, I saw that the State Department's FY24 budget request includes $5 million for the accessible housing program, through which the department intends to provide at least one residence accessible to employees with disabilities at every post with a housing pool. Of those posts with a housing pool, how many missions in the um, EAP region currently lack accessible housing? And given the current funding available, how long do you expect it would take the department to ensure at least one accessible residence at every such mission in your region? Senator, thank you very much for raising this uh, very important issue. I'll need to take that back uh, and come back to you with uh, the details. I know that we're committed across the U.S. government and across uh, our bureau to make sure that our facilities are accessible. Uh, but I'll need to take that back uh, to come back with you uh, on the details. I, I do know um, that we've worked very hard to make our facilities uh, accessible. Uh, it sounds to me like based on your direct experience, we have a long ways to go. But I'm happy to, to take that back and I'll get you a specific answer. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Senator Duckworth. Let me turn it over to Senator Haggerty and, and thank you for uh, hosting a, a Japanese delegation here on the Hill yesterday led by Mr. Motegi. Yes, thank you. And he was uh, very appreciative as well, Senator Van Hollen, of the uh, respect and the showing that we had there with 10 senators, I think, uh, it underscores how important their bilateral relationship is and they were very appreciative, so thank you. Yes, indeed. And um, it's good to see old friends here today. Um, I would, um, have been looking forward to this discussion. I'm sorry we don't have more time to, to talk today, but I'm going to spend my time with you, if I might, Assistant Secretary Crittenbrink, um, to talk to you about a couple of items that concern me. One of them uh, is regarding a report that I saw in the Financial Times on April the 14th. They reported, I'm going to read this directly, that, quote, China is refusing to let the U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken visit Beijing over concerns that the FBI will release the results of an investigation into the downed 
suspected Chinese spy balloon. That's the end of the quote. The spy balloon issue hasn't gone away. The FBI report, I think, is something that the American public uh, will value in terms of letting us finally get authoritative facts about what actually happened with the spy balloon and their egregious violation of U.S. sovereignty. My first question, Secretary Crittenbrink, do you support the full release of the FBI report on this Chinese spy balloon to Congress? Well, uh, Senator, I, I absolutely support making sure uh, that people are aware of what happened. I think that this incident, um, I know um, many members of the administration have had an opportunity to brief on this. This was uh, a completely uh, unacceptable uh, incident that violated American sovereignty and territorial integrity. I, I agree, and I, I hope think that- our reaction, uh, our actions taken in response to it were, yeah. uh, were crystal clear. I hope the EAP will be responsible for the full report to be released to Congress. And next question- but, but I would say, sir, given that these are matters beyond my uh, responsibility, I would, of course, have to refer you to Department of Justice and FBI. There, there um, I presume we an unclassified version of this report, too. Again, I would just like to see EAP being supportive of the release of this and not, not the contrary. Um, but the other question that I think that the, the point raised by the Financial Times comment raises is whether the Chinese pressure to obtain, an, whether our desire to obtain an official visit with China uh, is going to in any way affect our decision to release the report. And my question of you is that you support releasing the FBI report on the Chinese spy balloon prior to any senior level visit to China? Well, uh, I would respond to it in a couple of ways. Again, Senator, I would have to say on the, the details of, of any FBI report, I'd have to refer you to the Department of Justice and FBI. If I could say, though, very specifically, we continue to make clear to our Chinese counterparts um, that we will always stand up and defend American national interests, full stop. Let me come back to the quote uh, We are again. also committed, sir, to managing responsibility, managing responsibly this intense competition between the United States and China. And part of that, in our mind, has to involve uh, senior level communication, keeping channels open. It's the only way uh, to responsibly manage. Even if China conditions that sort of dialogue on we're, meeting their demands, like not releasing the FBI, FBI report on the China spy balloon? We, we don't believe uh, in engagement based on uh, demands and, and preconditions. We think that responsible nations ought to engage with one another and do everything possible. I hope that means to, that you won't meet their preconditions, then at least relating to the FBI report on the spy balloon. I'd like to come to another issue that relates to fentanyl. Uh, as you know, China is the principal source of chemical precursors that the Mexican cartels are synthesizing into fentanyl. They're smuggling across our border and killing our kids with it. But top Chinese officials, including Foreign Minister Qin Gang, have publicly demanded that the United States accept certain preconditions before China will cooperate on fentanyl. China's preconditions include delisting Chinese entities involved in the Uyghur genocide. So my next question, is whether it's your view that China expects the United States to accept certain preconditions before it will discuss potential cooperation with us on the fentanyl crisis. Senator, I'll have to leave to uh, Beijing to talk about what its position is. Our position is crystal clear. China needs to do everything possible uh, to stop uh, the chemicals that feed the fentanyl trade and now. China has demonstrated in the past it has the capacity to do so. And when we had agreements in 2019 um, to, uh, to register uh, those, those chemicals, there was a, a dramatic 
um, uh, drop uh, in fentanyl. What we see now uh, oftentimes are these precursor chemicals that uh, yeah. in many instances are technically legal that are diverted to the cartels uh, and, and then uh, uh, synthesized uh, into fentanyl. We've made clear that there are many things that the Chinese could do to cut down on that trade. Uh, I know that uh, Treasury and others in the U.S. government have recently taken action to sanction certain entities. Treasury has. It's interesting. The State Department has actually pulled back any condemnation at the same time that Treasury has been willing to go forward and name Chinese entities. What I hate to see, Secretary Crittenbrink, and I have the utmost respect for you, as you know, but what I hate to see is us find ourselves in a situation where the CCP is making demands on us and that we in some way are acceding to those demands just so we can get some sort of high-level visit over in Beijing and a photo opportunity. We need to be pressing them at every level. Senator, we, we don't believe in dialogue for dialogue's sake. Dialogue needs to be focused uh, on a purpose uh, at a minimum. The necessary communication channels need to be open so that we can do everything possible to advert a miscalculation that could lead to conflict. But there are many other re reasons why we ought to be talking to one another, including, mm. as you outlined here, Senator, very... Uh, important issues, including fentanyl, which is uh, one of our uh, absolute top priorities. No, there are several others as well. We, we agree on that. I appreciate it. But this is absolutely critical that their preconditions not be accepted. Thank you, Secretary. Thank you. Uh, thank you, uh, Senator Haggerty. And, and let me just say, uh, Mr. Secretary, I, I share Senator Haggerty's view that uh, we cannot allow China to establish preconditions for the opportunity to, to talk to them. Uh, let me, um, we're going to have a second round of questions uh, now for members uh, who are interested. Um, as we heard, we're going to be soon welcoming, and today or tomorrow, um, President Marcos from the Philippines. And of course, we had a very busy week last week uh, with the South Korean uh, President Yoon. Uh, and I thought a lot of positive uh, developments came out of uh, that meeting uh, between President Yoon and President Biden. Uh, including uh, the announcement of the Washington de Declaration. Uh, Assistant Secretary Crittenbrink, if you could just expand on the exactly what the new declaration means. Is this a reinforcement of existing policy? Is it any change in existing uh, policy? Um, and if you could take that opportunity just to discuss the threat uh, being posed by, by North Korea. And also, as part of your answer, um, I'm one of the authors of the Auto Warm Beer Brink Act, uh, along with former Senator Toomey, uh, which was designed to impose secondary sanctions on any country or entity that is undermining uh, the sanctions that we have uh, on North Korea. And I've been very concerned about leakage uh, in that sanctions regime. So if you could just take this opportunity to answer those questions in the context of um, uh, North Korea and the threat it poses. Mr. Chairman, thank you very much for uh, these uh, incredibly important questions. Um, I fully agree that the visit by uh, Republic of Korea President Yoon was uh, incredibly successful uh, and it represented, I think, uh, a powerful uh, expansion uh, and further strengthening of our vitally important alliance. Um, Mr. Chairman, the, the Washington Declaration was issued primarily because of the unprecedented and growing nature of the threat from North Korea, uh, which uh, continues to launch um, uh, regularly uh, ballistic missiles, um, uh, continues to um, issue uh, irresponsible and threatening uh, rhetoric that, that threatens violence against 
um, uh, South Korea uh, and uh, the United States as well. Uh, in response to that, our two presidents issued the Washington Declaration. Um, they uh, made clear that as uh, a result of the Washington Declaration, the U.S. is committed to making effort, every effort to consult uh, with the ROK in nuclear uh, crises, and we've also created a new bilateral uh, mechanism that is designed uh, to help us um, uh, engage and plan on nuclear uh, and strategic issues. We've also agreed to regular strategic asset deployments and better integration of ROC, of Republic of Korea conventional assets into U.S. strategic planning. This is being done really just for one reason, and that's the nature of the growing uh, DPRK threat. Uh, I would say as a result of that threat, our alliance with the Republic of Korea has never been stronger. Our alliance with Japan has never been stronger, and the trilateral work between Washington, Tokyo, and Seoul uh, has never been uh, more robust. The United States continues to make clear to Pyongyang that we are open to diplomacy and dialogue, which will be the only sustainable long-term means of resolving this matter. But in the meantime, uh, in the face of the growing DPRK threat and threatening rhetoric, we will take the steps that we need to defend uh, our uh, allies uh, and the American people. And I think, uh, in a nutshell, that's what the Washington Declaration uh, means. And, Senator, I would, Mr. Chairman, I would also say, uh, as North Korea continues to refuse to engage diplomatically, uh, we will also not just take these steps to strengthen our defenses, but we will also continue uh, to implement and to expand the sanctions regime that is imposed on, on North Korea. Uh, and we will continue to impose costs uh, for their irresponsible behavior. I, I appreciate that. There's just on that last point on the sanctions, and I've met with uh, the Deputy Secretary of the Treasury Department uh, and others. Uh, if you look at the annual UN reporting on the leakage in the North Korea sanctions, um, it's substantial. And uh, I look forward to following up with you and your team and the Department of uh, Treasury on what more we can do uh, to close those gaps, because uh, I'm, I'm not, I'm not convinced that we are uh, nailing down uh, every everything that we can there. Um, let me just. Uh, there, there's so much to ask on the economic front, but I'm just going to focus in on one area because I, I'm, I'm trying to get clarification, especially on the infrastructure budget that's before us. Um, and you, I think, outlined some of this in your testimony, but. The Congressional Budget Justification requests $250 million for a state USAID co-managed partnership for global infrastructure and investment fund. The justification also requests $2 billion in mandatory funds for an international infrastructure fund. The budget also mentions the Trade Development Agency and says that it will, quote, prepare infrastructure projects, unquote via the interagency uh, process and support the administration's goal to mobilize $200 billion from the PG, from the, from the uh, global uh, infrastructure account over the next five years. And it notes that there'll be $2 billion for the Indo-Pacific region. Um, I, I've been a longtime believer in the fact that we need to leverage more of our tools um, on the infrastructure front. Uh, you can't beat something with nothing, um, and obviously the Belt and Road Initiative includes uh, a number of infrastructure investments. Some of them funds misspent, and we've been clear uh, and warned countries about the fact that um, those investments come with strings that come back to bite them. But can you clarify, uh, Mr. Crittenbrink, all these different infrastructure proposals that are set forth in the budget? 
Mr. Chairman, I can certainly uh, do my best. Uh, I'm not an infrastructure expert either, but I, I uh, believe I understand uh, the requests. Uh, there is, um, uh, of course, with the, the DFC and TDA and many others, we continue to work with our discretionary funding uh, to try to uh, create the appropriate environment uh, to facilitate uh, sound infrastructure investment uh, across the region. And as part of that effort, uh, and as part of uh, the President's PGII initiative, there is a $250 million uh, discretionary request this coming year. But, uh, Mr. Chairman, you had mentioned uh, two other important uh, components of the President's budget that involve not just the discretionary uh, requests, but also a number of uh, mandatory uh, requests. I'd mentioned the $7.1 billion uh, related to COFA. Uh, then there's another $6 billion uh, in mandatory requests, including uh, $2 billion mandatory requests um, uh, related to the new uh, International Infrastructure Fund uh, and $2 billion related to other economic-related initiatives in the Indo-Pacific. Um, the thinking behind that is that for the International Infrastructure Fund, mandatory funding would give us the ability uh, to focus uh, over uh, multi-years, long-term projects and focus on, on hard infrastructure where we find many of the greatest needs are uh, around the world uh, and in uh, the Indo-Pacific. Regarding the, uh, the separate uh, $2 billion mandatory request related to uh, economic initiatives, specifically in the Indo-Pacific region, again, based on the mandatory multi-year funding, we believe this would give us the capacity to engage in long-term, uh, unprecedented um, economic engagements that we think would advance, obviously, uh, our national interest. This involves things like um, uh, resilient supply chains, um, connectivity, uh, and also uh, uh, anti-corruption efforts, uh, which um, unfortunately the PRC uh, uses corruption uh, to uh, its end. So again, the key here is uh, to try to safeguard long-term funding for these strategic uh, economic initiatives across uh, the Indo-Pacific. I hope that helps to uh, clarify the request. It, it does. Uh, Mr. Schiffer, I don't know if you want to briefly comment on it, and then I'm going to turn it over to Senator Ricketson. Sure. No, no, I, I appreciate the opportunity. Um, as Assistant Secretary Crittenbrink laid out, uh, you know, as we think about this issue, there, there are different purposes, even to the same ends, that the mandatory and the discretionary funds uh, are, able to, uh, are able to provide. Um, so, for, for example, um, in, the, in the Pacific Islands, we partner with Japan, Australia, New Zealand, uh, and others on projects like the, uh, the Papua New, New Guinea Electrification Partnership, where we're able to come in with technical assistance. They can come in with hard infrastructure, uh, and then we can each leverage each other's uh, comparative advantages uh, um, so, that we can so that we can leverage uh, the, the, those partnerships. Um, be, to be able to do that, though, requires our being able to make long-term commitments to these projects over, over multiple years. Um, and so as we focus on improving the enabling environment uh, across the Indo-Pacific, removing transaction-level barriers, um, and building like-minded partner consortiums um, to compete on projects and to mobilize financings from the U.S. government, uh, the private sectors, and others, we find that both the discretionary and the mandatory pieces um, are essential if we're going to be able to move forward uh, in building the sort of economic uh, environment uh, for, for the Indo-Pacific uh, that, I, that I know we all strive for. 
Uh, thank you. Um, Senator Ricketts. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Secretary Crenbrink, at the end of your last question answer to me, you talked about how it's more than just arms sales that will help deter uh, the People's Republic of China. And I couldn't agree more. We need to shore up existing alliances, develop new security partnerships. And one of the things that a lot of yeah, countries yeah, yeah. in Asia care about is trade. And that seems to be missing from this overall strategy. The uh, president unveiled his Indo-Pacific Economic Framework in October of 2021 that well, set a high-level outline for things like labor standards and environment, open digital trade fl uh, data flows, free, fair, and open trade and investment policies, uh, resilient supply chains, you just mentioned that. But it doesn't really do that. It's not envisioned in the concept of a traditional trade agreement to talk about tariffs or market access. And to me, it doesn't seem like that actually will help fundamentally shift supply chains, doesn't help promote U.S. agriculture or manufacturing, specifically if you think about Nebraska, you know, where uh, we have a lot of trade exports and agriculture. Doesn't it uh, help encourage countries to really embrace these standards? In fact, it's not even really a, an agreement at all, but just uh, talks about an outline about how talks might begin down the road. In the meantime, the People's Republic of China is not wasting any time. They've entered into a regional comprehensive economic partnership, a free trade pact that includes many of our allies, and covers about 30% of the world's population. And the chairman mentioned the Belt and Road Initiative, where the People's Republic of China is making significant investments in Pacific nations. I think they're the largest investor in Pacific nations, and it's building goodwill for them. So my question is, how does the Biden administration effect to effectively, expect to effectively compete with the People's Republic of China's influence in the region if we don't have a more ambitious and comprehensive trade strategy for how we're going to develop these trade relationships with countries in that part of the world? Senator, thank you very much for uh, your question. Um, we are quite uh, excited by the prospects uh, involved in, in IPEF, where, as you noted, uh, it's true that tariff liberalization will not be part uh, of IPEF, but nevertheless, uh, you know, among the four pillars uh, in IPEF is a trade pillar that we think is incredibly important to breaking down a range of non-tariff barriers uh, and creating a common set of high standard rules across the region. So we believe in IPEF, we have the region's uh, 14, um, 14 uh, including the United States, of the most important dynamic economies uh, in the region. And we are aiming to set uh, the rules of the road for uh, the 21st century economy. So uh, as I mentioned, in, in the trade pillar does not include tariff liberalization, but it includes many other uh, elements that we think uh, are important, including issues related to labor environment, the digital economy, and the like. The other pillars of IPEF are related to supply chains, clean energy, uh, and then what we call the fair economy, tax and anti-corruption. So we believe um, that IPEF uh, will be a transformational agreement. It includes many elements that are unprecedented. Uh, we are uh, committed to uh, concluding it uh, at an early date, and I think you can see through its membership, uh, it shows uh, as well. Uh, I think the appetite for U.S. engagement, including U.S. economic engagement uh, across the region. So you don't believe that tariffs need to be a part of that overall equation as well? I mean, this is the hard dollars, right, that countries care about. You, but, well, and you just acknowledge that the tariffs are not part of this. They're, they're not part uh, of the current conversations, uh, Senator, but um, we are confident that IPEF, uh, when concluded, 
uh, will be an important and transformational agreement that is very much in uh, America's national interest and in the interest of America's uh, farmers and workers. Okay. Uh, I do want to follow up uh, real quick on one of the things that the uh, chairman was talking about with regard to the sanctions on North Korea. I believe that in the three months since the White House announced um, some of their um, that the announced that uh, Pyongyang was covertly supplying rockets and missiles to U.S. sanctioned Wagner Group, that only one Slovakian individual has been sanctioned for attempting to negotiate the uh, North Korean-Russia arms deal. And I'm wondering, what is the status of implementing these sanctions on North Korea that were overwhelmingly passed on a bipartisan basis? Besides the Slovakian national sanction in late March of 2023, why is administration not sanctioned North Korean and Russian entities, individuals, and banks involved in this Pyongyang-Moscow proliferation activities? Well, um, Senator, we remain deeply concerned by uh, a range of North Korean actions, including uh, uh, the action you've referred to of it providing um, uh, weapons uh, to uh, the Wagner Group for Russia's uh, use in Ukraine. As you noted, we have uh, applied sanctions uh, related to that action, and we're committed to taking whatever actions we can uh, to penalize those involved in that action and to deter uh, further transactions. But this is a, a deeply concerning uh, and disturbing action, uh, no doubt about it. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Go to Senator Haggerty, and then if no Democrat arrives, to Senator Cruz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Just a brief follow-up question. Again, Secretary Crittenbrink, I'd like to come, with, come to you, if I might, to talk about Taiwan, and specifically the Taiwan Enhanced Resilience Act that Chairman Menendez led. I was proud to join him, and we included that in the 2023 NDAA. Um, that law provides for $2 billion worth of foreign military finance between now and 2027, and a billion dollars per year of presidential drawdown authority that would all be used to help support Taiwan's military posture. The other thing that the Menendez, Menendez law included was the requirement for a spending plan that was due March 1 of 2023. And I'm, I'm certain that you and Jessica Lewis are working closely on this, but I wanted to get your, your, your sense for when we will have this report ready. Senator, I'll have to take that back and come back to you with a specific answer. Uh, the only thing I could say uh, on the spot would be, as I indicated, we're grateful for the support of this committee and the various uh, authorities and tools that have been made available to us. Mm -hmm. We are open to exploring using all tools available to us to assist Taiwan in maintaining uh, a credible uh, self-defense capacity. But I'll have to take your question back and come back with this. This is an area you, you know very well, and you understand the threat posture there. We've got now a $19 billion backlog in foreign military sales to Taiwan. Again, we've got these new authorities that the Menendez Law has put forward, and the spend plan is absolutely critical. Again, is due March 1. I can't imagine a more threatening concern that we have in the region, East Asia Pacific, than the situation in the Taiwan Strait. So uh, I look forward to hearing right away uh, when this will be provided to us, and hopefully yes, that will be very, very soon. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Cruz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Crittenbrink, uh, you and I have spoken several times uh, about my concerns that the Biden administration has been consistently weak on China, and in particular weak in supporting Taiwan. 
one area we have discussed multiple times is this administration's continued prohibition on our Taiwanese allies from displaying symbols of their sovereignty on American soil. And you know the history of this policy. It was the Obama administration that first implemented the policy at the behest of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, when President Trump became Trump, I sp became president, I spent four years battling the Trump administration, urging them to change the policy. And finally, at the end of the administration, I was successful. And the State Department changed the policy to allow Taiwan to do what all of our other allies can do, which is to appear on U.S. soil, to appear on U.S. government properties with Taiwanese flags wearing Taiwanese military uniforms. When President Biden became president and he nominated Tony Blinken to be Secretary of State, I asked Mr. Blinken about this question before this committee. And Secretary Blinken committed at the time to keep the policy in place, quote, for the time being. It turned out that phrase for the time being meant just so long, just enough time for him to get confirmed and get in office because shortly after he got there, he reversed the policy. He returned to the same appeasement of the Chinese Communist Party that had prevailed under the Obama administration. And I have to say it occurred at a particularly bad time when China is engaging in more and more aggressive and bellicose actions towards ta Taiwan. Now, at your confirmation hearing, I asked you about this. And you committed to this committee, and I quote, you said, quote, I am committed in every way to growing our partnership in Taiwan. Now, every way presumably includes allowing the Taiwanese to display their flags, their uniforms, their symbols of sovereignty. Has the State Department done so, and if not, why? Senator Cruz, thank you for your question. Um, respectfully, uh, I would say, Senator, that the U.S. government's policy related to symbols of sovereignty. Uh, uh, that policy and those restrictions have been in place uh, since the very beginning of the implementation of our One China policy and our unofficial partnership. With respect, that's not with, true with because Taiwan. the Trump State Department reversed them and allowed Taiwan to display the symbols of sovereignty. Um, but, Senator, um, these were not uh, new policies that came about uh, in the Obama administration. These are restrictions that from the very beginning. Is it true the Trump administration reversed the policy? Uh, it is true that near the end of the Trump administration, um, the contact guidelines that have traditionally guided U.S. government interaction with Taiwan were rescinded. So the policy was they could display their symbols of sovereignty, and then the Biden administration came in and acquiesced once again to the Chinese communists. And I will point out this view is not an esoteric view. I have not once but twice introduced legislation to allow the Taiwanese to display their symbols of sovereignty. And this committee has passed that legislation with an overwhelming bipartisan vote multiple times. So if you have Democrats and Republicans on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee telling the State Department, respect the Taiwanese and treat them as allies, why does the Biden State Department refuse to follow that guidance? Senator, since 1979, we have not had formal diplomatic relations uh, with Taiwan. 
Taiwan uh, is an important uh, but unofficial partner with whom we have uh, an incredibly robust uh, relationship. I would well, argue. All right, let me ask. I, a, I would a, argue, let me ask a different question, Senator. If then. I could just, no, no, I want to ask another aspect. I would argue. Our time Senator, is running out. That our partnership with Taiwan has never been stronger. We have. All right. Well, let me give another respect. example then, Mr. And I Mr. Think Credden, the, Mr. Credenbeck. Yes, sir. Another area where I am very concerned concerns Taiwan's participation in the International Civil Aviation Organization. Last Congress, I authored legislation, which became law with bipartisan support, requiring the administration to formulate and transmit a strategy for securing Taiwan's inclusion in ICAO. We saw, particularly during the COVID pandemic, with the incredible number of flights going through Taiwan, that it was asinine not to include discussions with Taiwan. It should be a no-brainer. Taiwan is a global hub for civil aviation. Well, the State Department recently transmitted that report. I have it in my hand here. Without being unkind, it doesn't approach remotely the urgency of the, the, urgency of the issue that the legislation required. So I want to ask you, what is State Department's specific, concrete, strategic plan to secure Taiwan's participation in the International Civil Aviation Organization? Senator, we agree with you that Taiwan ought to participate meaningfully, not just in ICAO, but in many other uh, international institutions, given uh, Taiwan's important matter, uh, important role in global affairs and global economy. I'll have to take back your question on our specific strategy for doing so. Uh, but uh, I hope our position is clear. And just one. So by statute, it should have been in this report, and it's not. Uh, I'm happy to take that back and take a look at that, Senator. Thank you. Thank you, Senator uh, Cruz. Um, just a, a couple more uh, areas of, of inquiry, and thank you both again for your, your testimony uh, and for uh, your efforts on, on, all these, uh, on all these areas. I want to turn quickly to the question of Burma uh, and quickly get both of your assessments of, um, of the situation there, which by my own evaluation is just a continuing miserable situation. Um, we raised this issue, we meaning our delegation, uh, when we went uh, to Indonesia, since Indonesia is currently chairing ASEAN, uh, and received um, you know, some briefings from their, their point person on this. Uh, can you talk a little bit about um, the administration's current approach uh, to Burma? Uh, Mr. Crittenbrink and Mr. Uh, Schiffer, if you could talk a little bit about AID's efforts, uh, because I know AID is also using some funding to try to uh, address some of the civil society issues. Mr. Chairman, thank you. Um, since the coup d'etat that took place uh, in Burma in February 1, 2021, I think what has happened in Burma is an absolute travesty. Uh, and the junta continues to carry out uh, a pattern of um, uh, of violence uh, and, and murder, bombing uh, innocent civilians, schools, uh, beheading activists, carrying out a campaign of terror that is uh, simply shocking to uh, the conscience. Um, the United States continues to work with a range of partners uh, in the international community to uh, put pressure uh, on uh, the junta to uh, first stop the violence and second to return uh, to uh, a democratic path. Uh, um, we continue to support the efforts uh, of ASEAN. I'm sure, Mr. Chairman, you heard about this when you were uh, in the region. 
We uh, support uh, the ASEAN five-point consensus. We support uh, the work of the UN. But I think uh, we have to be very candid and honest in our assessment that uh, the regime has not uh, changed course. Uh, as a result, we continue to take uh, a range of our own unilateral, unilateral efforts uh, to place pressure on the regime, and that's included uh, the designation of 82 uh, individuals and uh, 32 entities who uh, have been involved uh, in carrying out uh, this um, indiscriminate violence against uh, the Burmese population. Uh, we are also carrying out uh, more than $100 million uh, in assistance programming for the Burmese people, for the, Burma, for the Burmese uh, opposition and the, the democratic uh, movement. Uh, but perhaps on that, I could turn to my colleague, uh, Mr. Schiffer, who I uh, am certain uh, has more depth on the details of those programs. Thank you, and, and thank you, Senator, for, for raising that uh, the, this important question. Um, Burma's military regime must be held accountable for the atrocities that they have committed uh, and the violence that they've inflicted on the people of Burma um, since that country's very founding um, during the Rohingya genocide uh, and most recently following the, the February 2021 coup. Uh, as uh, Administrator Power has, uh, has offered on numerous occasions, uh, USAID stands with the people of Burma, including the pro-democracy opposition, uh, ethnic minority groups, and the brave civil society actors uh, who are fighting for civil and political rights uh, and an inclusive federal and democratic future for their nation uh, in the face of a brutal military dictatorship. Uh, and I can't really add to uh, the, the items that, Dan, that Assistant Secretary Curtin-Brink enumerated uh, that do indeed shock, uh, shock the conscience. Um, we uh, at USAID, along with our State Department uh, colleagues, uh, have been working over the past several months to uh, assess the situation on the ground uh, in Burma and to determine what additional uh, options and opportunities there may be to both uh, assure that humanitarian assistance gets to the people that are most in need uh, in Burma and in the refugee uh, communities that have spilled out uh, across Burma's borders. Uh, as well as to determine what non-lethal assistance, uh, consistent with the, uh, the requirements of the Burma Act, uh, we might be able to provide, particularly assistance that can help the people of Burma uh, to prevent uh, atrocities. Um, we are still in the process of making determination on that. Uh, we're very happy to come up here, hopefully uh, in the not-too-distant future, uh, with our colleagues from state, uh, and to brief the, the, the committee about the options that we've identified uh, and our proposal for a way forward. Uh, thank you, Mr. Schiffer. And let me also just take this opportunity to thank you and uh, Administrator Power and all your colleagues at AID for the terrific work you're doing um, in this region. Uh, as I mentioned, I was in Indonesia and Vietnam. We met with uh, the AID teams, uh, and they were doing first-rate work. And thank you. I got, I got word this morning in, a, in another committee, the Appropriations uh, Foreign Ops Subcommittee, that uh, we have cleared the um, agreement with the Indonesian government so we can move forward on our, our biodiversity and other efforts there. So, so thank you for those. Senator Ricketts. Great. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Well, we're going to continue the discussion on Indonesia. Uh, okay. Uh, obviously, as we looked uh, to bolster our relationships with countries in Asia and counter the PRC's influence, Indonesia has become a challenge. Just over the last decade, China has deepened its ties with Indonesia, in many cases in direct competition to the United States. China has delivered sizable investments, pouring billions of dollars into 
developing the world's largest nickel deposits, uh, has been a major partner in the country's infrastructure push, including a high-speed train that is admittedly over budget and uh, late. But um, it's, uh, they, China has invested in the first nine months of 2022 $5 billion in Indonesia compared to the United States $2 billion. And in return, Indonesia has been delivering back for the People's Republic of China. It voted in favor of the PRC's position at the UN on um, the persecution of the Uyghurs. And ASEAN, Indonesia has consistently been on the PRC side as far as unrestricted economic access to the 10 member nations. On the defense front, while the U.S. and Indonesia have held recent joint military exercises, the PRC and Indonesia have also announced that they will hold and resume exercises on their own. I believe Indonesia has expressed unhappiness with the recent Australia-UK-US submarine agreement, with some officials threatening to not allow Australia's nuclear-powered submarines to travel through their sea lanes. Given its strategic location and miles of vital sea lane, Indonesia is a defensive necessity if the PRC uh, decides to take Taiwan by force. Uh, Sir, Secretary Krimbrink, what actions is the Biden administration considering to strengthen our ties with Indonesia, considering how important uh, their geostrategic position in the world is? Senator Ricketts, thank you very much. Couldn't agree with you more about the importance of Indonesia, and certainly um, uh, Indonesia uh, remains one of our most important partners uh, in the region. Uh, as reflected in the, in the strategic partnership that we, the formal strategic partnership that we have uh, with them. I would say, um, as the world's largest Muslim-majority nation, the world's third largest democracy, and uh, obviously uh, as a, a long-standing leader in ASEAN, they have been one of our uh, primary partners in the region for some time. We were uh, gratified with the leadership that Indonesia showed uh, last year in the G20, where I think they navigated a very difficult circumstance involving, obviously, Russia's uh, illegal invasion of Ukraine and also uh, pressure from the PRC. And I think um, the outcomes of the G20 were quite productive, and we have similar expectations for uh, how they will approach their chair year uh, in ASEAN. Uh, I, would, I would say, uh, Senator, that we have made significant investments in our relationship. Uh, I know last uh, November, uh, when President Biden traveled to uh, Bali for the G20 summit, we announced uh, a new a Millennium Challenge Corporation uh, program, a compact rather of $698 million. We announced $20 billion in public and private uh, support for the new Just Energy Transition Partnership uh, with Indonesia. And I think, um, Senator, I would say that uh, friends in Indonesia often uh, underscore uh, that they uh, live in a uh, tough neighborhood. Like many partners uh, in the region, um, they have often underscored that they don't want to be forced to choose. And our message to our friends in Indonesia and to uh, all of our friends across ASEAN is we're not asking you to choose. That's not the game that we play. Others may. We do not. We want to give countries like Indonesia choices, uh, give them a better offer, and make sure they have the opportunity to make their own decisions free from coercion. Uh, I'm confident um, uh, in the future of our partnership with Indonesia. I know that Indonesia, like others in the region, they don't want to be dominated or coerced by anyone. Uh, I'm confident that like we, uh, like we do, uh, they, they value the partnership that we have together. And we're engaged in a whole range of areas from the, the economic and the infrastructure side to people-to-people -to -people ties to uh, security ties, including uh, in the maritime domain and 
I'm confident we'll continue to do that uh, going forward. And as, again, I think as long as we continue to demonstrate our leadership and commitment to the region and to Indonesia, I'm optimistic about our future together. Okay, great. Great, thank you very much, uh, Secretary. Appreciate uh, your uh, being here today, as well as Mr. Schiffer as well. Thank you. Thank you, Senator. Hey, thank you, thank you, Senator Ricketts. And, um, you know, I agree with Senator Ricketts uh, that we do need to up our game um, in East Asia and the Pacific. That does require resources uh, and a commitment, which of course um, gets back to your budget submission today. And I look forward to working with my colleagues to make sure that we have the resources to match uh, our strategy. Uh, we had a very good meeting with the Indonesian president, President Jokowi, uh, along with other top leaders in Indonesia. Uh, they expressed great interest in the new uh, JetP uh, program, but that's gonna require dollars. I know the DFC uh, was there. They were on the ground uh, before we got there. Uh, but in order to you know, make these uh, commitments, uh, the resources for our different institutions, State Department, DFC, others are gonna be absolutely required. So I, I do agree with Senator Ricketts that uh, we need to we need to identify those in terms of the mandatory funding. You know, I also sit on the appropriations committee. Members of the appropriations committee, you know, look at little askants at, um, at at mandatory funding. But I do believe when you're talking about trying to make longer term commitments, uh, mandatory funding uh, plays a very very important role. Let me just also finally say in closing to, to both of you, thank you for what you're doing. I, I do want to just say with respect to uh, Taiwan. Um, Ambassador Crittenbrink, uh, thank you for laying out very clearly and firmly what our policy is. Um, we want to preserve the status quo. Uh, we will provide Taiwan with the military assistance and equipment it needs to make itself a porcupine uh, to deter aggression and to defend itself. Um, I, I don't think there's, Taiwan uh, has, as, as you've testified to, um, purchased lots of U.S. military equipment. Um, we do need to address the pipeline uh, issue. I could not agree uh, with you more, Senator Ricketts and others who have made that point. Um, I, I don't think it's any secret that some of us had concerns uh, last year when one of the provisions uh, in the legislation that, that passed this committee was to create a new uh, foreign assistance program for Taiwan. Um, you know, my, my view is uh, Taiwan is a friend. Uh, they're also a very advanced economy. They purchase billions of dollars of assistance for defense. And my concern at the time was that by authorizing a certain amount of assistance, military assistance for Taiwan, if the administration or others down the road don't uh, you know, ask for the full amount, it would be seen as not you know, meeting our commitments. I, I, I actually thought that was a, a mistake uh, to do that because I do believe that Taiwan uh, has the economic uh, punch <laughs> to purchase equipment, but we need to make sure that they get what they need and what they want, um, and also to advise them as we have uh, on purchasing equipment that uh, does take um, advantage of asymmetric defenses and, and make them a porcupine. So I just want to close. Uh, I thank you, Mr. Schiffer, and your colleagues at AID. Um, Ambassador Crittenbrink, please give our thanks to all your colleagues uh, at the State Department, both the Foreign Service officers as well as the civil servants 
I'm always impressed um, when we go overseas and uh, also grateful for your, your service and testimony here today. Thank you. Um, let me just get some housekeeping uh, out of the way here. I know I was given a piece of paper about, here we go. Um, for the information of the members, the record will be open until close of business tomorrow, Wednesday, May 3rd, for the submission of any questions for the record. Again, thank you both for your testimony and service. The hearing is adjourned.